Hello everyone, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John chapter 18. I'm going to cover the first 12 verses, which describe Jesus' betrayal, his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and how he was forsaken in the Garden of Gethsemane by the disciples. Jesus, our context is this, Jesus in the previous chapter had just given the high priestly prayer, which was probably right outside of the Garden of Gethsemane as they came from the Last Supper. The whole chapter was taken up with a high priestly prayer, very famous scripture. So that's our context. Now, verses 1 through 12 have parallels in the Synoptic Gospels. There's a parallel in Mark 14, 40 through 52, and in Matthew 26, 47 through 56, and in Luke 22, 47 through 53. Now, I have already done a previous audio covering all three of these parallels, as well as John 18, 1 through 12, and so I'm going to splice that audio in here, and that audio begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Mark 14. We're going to talk today about the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his betrayal by Judas, and the desertion of him by all of his disciples. This, of course, is on Passover night, Thursday night. It's past midnight. It's in the middle of the morning hours, pitch black dark. It's cold spring night, about 50 degrees or so, and Jesus has just finished praying three times to his father to please take the cup away from him. God, the father, refuses and says no And Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And he is calmly facing the arrest mob that's coming after him. Now, there's four parallel passages passages that describe the arrest in Gethsemane. And each one of them has details that the other one doesn't. So I'm going to go through all four. I'm going to hop back and forth as we go through the story. We're going to start with John chapter 18, verse 2. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. That's Gethsemane. Because Jesus often met there, met there with his disciples. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that Jesus went to the place where he knew Judas would go looking for him. He went like a lamb to the slaughter, they say. John 10:18 says this, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own as life. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So Jesus knew that they were going to get him, and he didn't go to extraordinary lengths to escape the arrest mob, the posse that was after him. And Judas, this is how Judas betrayed him, because Judas knew that Jesus often went there to pray, and also his disciples, uh, he took his disciples with with him often. Now we'll go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, while he was still telling the disciples, okay, it's time to get up from your sleep. The one who betrays me is here. So in the middle of that, he was interrupted because Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priest and elders of the people. Now, who was in this mob? Well, of course, the chief priests were there, as we just read. Those were the chief ecclesiastical authorities, people who ran the temple complex and the sacrificial system. The elders, that's probably the political leaders, people who were on the Sanhedrin, We got the teachers of the law. We read in verses previous in Mark, not in Matthew, I'm sorry, back in Mark 14, verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived with him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, and those were the private teachers of the law. They were called lawyers, and they were mainly Pharisees. Lots of them were Pharisees, and they were experts in the law. So they were there. 
So then you also had a detachment of temple police. We read later in Matthew 26, verse 52, uh, and also in John 18, 3. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priest and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The temple police were those who secured the safety of the temple. I often wonder whether they're Levites. That must have been one of their jobs. But anyway, they were under the control of the high priest. Caiaphas probably. They were not Romans, but they were Jews. And they were in the mob also. But also the Romans were there. Roman soldiers were there. In John 18.3, we read this. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priest and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And when it says Pharisees, that is probably referring to the scribes because most scribes were Pharisees. They all were not necessarily Pharisees. And not all Pharisees were scribes, but there, there were enough. There was enough overlap that oftentimes they were mentioned in one breath, Pharisees and scribes. And so they were there. And then there were probably some last-minute conscripts. These were the ones that were carrying the clubs. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. So it was not a small party that Judas brought up there. There was a ton of folks. Jesus and his disciples, naturally speaking, did not have a chance of fighting them and getting away. Notice the loyal disciples, they were sleeping. But Judas, what was he doing? He was up all night gathering an army together to arrest Jesus so he could get his lousy 30 pieces of silver. Now, that was a lot of people that came to just arrest one person and his 11 disciples. A lot of them came out of curiosity, according to John Gill. They might have kept, Judas might have gotten so many people, and the, Judas and the chief priest and the, and the scribes back in Jerusalem might have sent so many people because they were scared that there was going to be a popular reaction in favor of Jesus. Remember that the whole time they're scared to death of the crowd that's in Jerusalem for Passover, about 200,000 people, many of whom were proclaiming Jesus as Messiah just the last Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. Now, they were probably afraid of the popular reaction, and that's also why they went in the middle of the night to cut down on that popular, uh, popular reaction so that, because people wouldn't know what they were doing. So they had a lot of people, and they did it in the dead of night. They were trying to be very careful that they nailed Jesus. And all of these authority figures in the mob gave the lynch lynching a color of law because they could say, well, we had all the big shots coming in here after Jesus. I should mention again, this is in the middle of the night. We've flipped over from Thursday, Nissan the 14th, past midnight. Now we're in the early morning hours of Friday, so-called Good Friday, the day that Jesus was eventually crucified. But now it's early in the morning. The word that is used, Matthew uses to describe this arresting posse is mob, according to the Holman Christian Study Bible. That's the way they translate it, a mob, great multitude, a, mul a great multitude, so Matthew calls it in the King James. So there's a lot of people. And we also pick up another detail in Luke chapter 22, verse 47. It says that Judas went before the mob. So he was leading them. He was not just tagging along. He, he was leading them because he needed to show them where Jesus was. We now turn to John 18, verse 3 to continue with the story. So Judas took a, comp a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The Holman Christian Study Bible translation in John 18 says that mob was a company of soldiers. Mob sounds a little bit better. But at any rate, they're there to arrest Jesus and they're carrying torches, which are probably resinous pieces of wood that were fastened together because to light up the night. Now, it was a full moon at that time of Passover. 
according to Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, but they might have thought they had to search him out in caves and so forth, so they took torches with them to boot. So they had the full moon, they had the torches to see. They were also carrying weapons. Matthew and Mark say the weapons were swords and staves. Stave is like a pike beat somebody over the head with. So there they were, the lanterns, uh, in addition to the torch. The lantern was a terracotta holder into which household lamps could be inserted. Not quite as bright, but they, so there was a lot of lanterns. People were carrying lanterns. They were carrying torches. There was plenty of light to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We move to verse 4 in John 18, and we read this. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Verse 5, Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Now that's a, a, an unusual thing. It's a, a sort of a strange thing that happened. Jesus responds, I'm the guy you're looking for, and boom, they fall to the ground. Here's some options as, as to why they did that. First option, NIV Study Bible and John Gill, they were expecting a peasant. Instead, they saw a majestic figure. This was not your ordinary criminal. He was the Son of God. The power of his words might have knocked them over. Kind of like when God says, I am, and Jesus says, I am. Basically, he was saying, I am, which are God-like words, of course. Yahweh, I am, like in the burning bush, I am. Maybe the power of his words knocked them over, as well as, the, as, well as his appearance. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that perhaps Jesus displayed some of his divine glory and majesty, which shocked them to show them some of his deity, according to John Gill. Maybe there was a glorious effulgence of the majesty of Christ. That sounds like he, Jesus glowed a little bit and got a little, gave him a little shock of his glorified body. I don't think that happened. I don't, I don't know why I don't think that, but I, don't, I think that's reaching a little bit. Or maybe Jesus just used his divine power to knock him over, show him who's boss here. He said, I'm going to go, I'm going to be arrested, but I'm going on my own accord. I lay my life down voluntarily, as he said earlier in it was John chapter 10, verse 18. I'm laying my life down voluntarily, so don't think you can just come up here and arrest me without me stopping you. I can stop you if I wanted to. You would think that getting knocked over, they'd have got, taken, gotten up and run, but I guess there was enough of them, and there was only one of Jesus and 11 of his disciples. They figured we can take him, even though we just got knocked down. Interesting, interesting to me, none of the other evangelists, Matthew and Mark and Luke, mentioned this interesting detail. I don't know why. It seems to me it would be interesting enough to put it in there, but they didn't. Now, Jesus went out, he says, in John chapter 18, verse 4, he went out to meet the mob. He, Judas was leading the mob, and Jesus led his disciples, and he walks to meet them. Why did he do that? To show that he was not afraid, perhaps, says John Gill, to show that the, that the soldiers and temple police couldn't have gotten him without his cooperation, to show that he voluntarily, voluntarily laid his life down for, the, for his father. He was trying to show that he was going to his death voluntarily, or maybe he was going to to try to prevent the soldiers from rushing on his disciples and catching catching him. Remember, he wanted the prophecy to be fulfilled, which was that the sheep were scattered. Not that the sheep were slaughtered, but the sheep were scattered. And he knew that if he went up and, and, and talked, it would stop them from rushing on the disciples and arresting them. I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's move on now to John 18, verses 7 through 9. Then he asked them again, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. He's referring to his disciples, of course. This was to fill, fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. 
Jesus cared for his disciples even as he was going to his death. Not only did he love them, but he needed them to continue his ministry. He did not want them to get caught. And so that's the first thing he said is let them go. Now, in my opinion, if the Jews had been smart, they would have arrested the disciples too, which would have snuffed the church out right in this very beginning. But in the providence of God, they didn't. It was probably because they were frightened. They might have had the number on Jesus, but they knew that this man had a lot of people supporting him in Jerusalem. They knew he had a lot of power. He had done a lot of miracles. He was not your ordinary criminal. And they might have figured, this is just as get Jesus. That's enough for tonight. Working against that theory, however, is they did, and Mark tells us that there was a, a man, a mysterious man in linen, who they did try to arrest, but the man in linen escaped out of the linen sheet and got away, which sounds like they were trying to arrest some of Jesus' followers. But at any rate, it might have they might have figured, we don't want to have an uproar here. Let's just let the disciples go, and let's just get Jesus. He looks like he wants to go with us without putting up a fight. Maybe that's the thing to do is let him go. Now, you'll notice that Jesus twice asked them, who is it you're looking for? I am he. He might have been trying to play for time, trying to give his disciples time to get them ready to run. I don't know. But he twice said, who is it you're looking for? I am he. I told you I am he. Let these men go. So he did it twice. Now, was this a command? Adam Clark says he was commanding the disciples or was it an entreaty? A request. Well, it seems to me that even though Jesus was God, he's also human and he's there and he doesn't have any weapons and he's outnumbered by a mob of arresting soldiers. Sounds more like an entreaty to me. But at any rate, they did let him go. And this verse 9 and John 18 verse 9, this was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Where is the scripture that says that? John 6:39 says this, this is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking. This is the will of him, the Father who sent me, Jesus, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. And in the high priestly prayer, which he had given just before this on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, after the Last Supper, in John 17:12, Jesus says this, While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name, so that I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the Son of Destruction, so that Scripture may be fulfilled. Now, somebody might raise a problem here. It says, well, they, they were all lost except for John. They eventually were all killed in the line of duty as Christian disciples. Well, Jesus was talking about while he was there on earth. He protected them. None of them got killed until after Pentecost. Here's going back to this question of why did Jesus ask them twice? Who is it that you're looking for? Jesus, I am he. It could have been because they were still in shock from having fallen down when Jesus first answered. He says, I am, and they hit the ground. And so they had to pick themselves up again, and Jesus had to ask him again because things were kind of discombobulated at that point. Perhaps Jameson Fawcett Brown said that he asked twice because he wanted to give them a door of escape from their guilt. Are you sure you want to arrest the Son of God? I'm giving you one last chance. You don't have to do it. When Jesus said, let these men go, I'm assuming he's talking about the 11 disciples, all of the, all of the 12 minus Judas. But Adam Clark says it's probably only Peter, James, and John. Because those were the three that were taken alone at the garden. I don't believe that. He's talking about all of them. I believe he wanted to get to get out of the garden. Now we move back to Matthew chapter 26, verse, verses 48 and 49, which read like this. His betrayer had given them a sign. That's Judas had given the mob, arresting mob, a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. So he went right up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. 
biggest number one hypocrite in the history of the human race. There's no politician that can match that kind of hypocrisy. Why did Jesus arrange a sign of a kiss? Why did he prearrange the sign with the temple police and the arresting mob? It was really unnecessary. As it turns out, Jesus identified himself and said, I'm he. We're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, and Jesus said, I'm he. But Jesus carried out the plan to kiss Jesus anyway. I wonder why. Maybe just to be just to be dead sure that they got the right man. Now, Judas picked this for a sign because a kiss was a usual, usual greeting among the disciples, and a kiss would, would not put Jesus on his guard. Judas probably thought that Jesus would probably accept the kiss and not realize what's going on. However, I'm amazed that Judas went through all this because Jesus had already identified him at the Last Supper. This is the one who's going to betray me. So Judas is really thinking he's going to get away with this, this hypocrisy of pretending to be a friend when Jesus has already nailed him. Adam Clark says Judas is coolly deliberate, deeply hypocritical, and diabolically malicious. I think that's an accurate description. And the Greek word for kiss is katafileo, which means, according to Adam Clark, kissed him over and over, tenderly kissed him, kissed him over and over and over. Why did the mom and Judas think that a sign was necessary? Well, remember, they're going out at night. They might not be able to distinguish Christ from his disciples. The Roman soldiers probably never had seen Jesus. Who knows who had seen Jesus and who had not seen Jesus? And, and that mob that went up, they had to be able to distinguish Jesus from the disciples. Judas tells them, look, as soon as I kiss him, arrest him. Why? Because Jesus had escaped arrest several times before. For example, in Luke 4, verse 30, I think this is at Nazareth, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. John 10:39. then they were trying again to seize him, yet he eluded their grasp. Jesus has slipped through their fingers before, and Jesus is saying, look, don't waste any time. As soon as I kiss him, you arrest him. He says to Jesus, Rabbi. Now, this word was normally used to show great honor and highest respect, but obviously he didn't really mean it at this point when he said Rabbi. It's a hypocrite. We turn now to Luke chapter 22, last half of verse 47 and verse 48. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, several things to notice here. Jesus is pointing out, ironically, the Son of Man, that's a messianic title. And he's saying, are you such a hypocrite? You're betraying the Messiah by pretending that you're his friend and you're betraying me with a kiss? In other words, he's pointing out his hypocrisy that he's trying to kiss him. Jesus wasn't fooled for a minute, of course, by Judas's hypocrisy. And he calls him Judas. That's his name. Might have been to ironically show that he had been a trusted friend and an apostle. And I can imagine that Jesus probably felt some pain at being betrayed by one of his disciples that had been with him for, what, for over three years. Jesus underwent so much pain that night that sometimes it's the pain of desertion and betrayal we sometimes forget. In fact, I think we often forget he was betrayed. He was screwed by one of his close friends. And if anybody's ever been screwed before, there's hardly anything worse. It's really bad. So Jesus calls him by his first name, Judas. He didn't say, you traitor, you liar, you hypocrite. And Jesus, you know, he did that plenty of times with the Pharisees. He called them all kinds of names. He, he wasn't averse to calling people some bad names if they deserved it. And Judas, of course, deserved it, but he didn't call him a bad name. He called him Judas, his first, his first name. You're betraying me with a kiss, Judas? What are you doing, man? That's kind of the, I think that's kind of the attitude of the way it was spoken now let's turn to Matthew 26:50 and read this. Friend, Jesus asked him, why have you come? 
Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. Now, there's a translation problem here. The NIV translates it this way, friend, do what you came for. And in the margin, the NIV says, friend, why have you come? And that's how the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it, just like the NIV margin, friend, why have you come? In other words, Jesus knows why he came, but he's getting him to Judas to articulate it. Are you coming here as my friend? You calling me rabbi? You my friend or you my enemy? I mean, why are you calling me rabbi? And you got this big mob of soldiers behind you? It's obviously you're not my friend. How can you be such a frippin' hypocrite? And you're kissing me when you got a mob of soldiers behind you? In fact, in the verse we just read, Luke 22, verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That would go good with the alternate translation, why have you come? To betray me with a kiss? Well, if you're betraying me with a kiss, why do you have all these soldiers behind you? Jesus, Jesus is not going to let people get away with their hypocrisy, which I think is pretty elegant of him, pretty, pretty cool. Now, how did he say that word friend? He could have been ironic and sarcastic. John Gill denies that. He could have just been going along with Judas's pretense of friendship, John Gill says. John Gill says maybe he was trying to cut Judas's sense of conscience, his conscience, not conscious, but his conscience, if he had any left, which I doubt. Adam Clark says, how must these words have cut his very soul if he had any sensibility left, which I doubt that he did. I think he was being a little bit ironic. Friend, you trying to kiss me with all your soldiers behind you? Come on. I think that's what he was doing. So when they came to arrest Jesus, as John Gill points out, they arrested him, but not before Jesus had shown his power. He had struck some of them to the ground, as we have just read. They could never have arrested the Son of God unless he had voluntarily surrendered, according to John Gill. The striking to the ground proved that. Let's go on to verse 51 in Matthew 26. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Now that one who is not named here was Peter, and the high priest's servant was named Malchus, and he got his ear cut off by Peter. Now, why was Peter's name not mentioned, except in John? Some people speculate that John's gospel was written late enough to where the heat would be off Peter so people wouldn't come try to get him for, for slicing off the high priest's ear. What motivated Peter to do this? Now remember, they're totally outnumbered. Jesus is voluntarily going to go. He's told them they're going to arrest him. He's going to die. There's no use fighting. He's already told them that a hundred times. I'm going to get arrested. No use fighting. So what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and and tries to defend Jesus. Now, of course, that would have started a riot. The soldiers would have pulled out their weapons, their staves, and their swords. They would have sliced the disciples up. They might have killed Jesus right there on the spot. Might have killed the disciples right there on the spot. This was a stupid thing that Peter had done. He Just looking at it from the natural, it was stupid. Not to mention the fact of all of Jesus' teaching, you know, that, hey, they're going to get me. I, the Son of Man is going to be caught and crucified in Jerusalem. As he said many times before, as I've pointed out over and over again, in these audios, Peter was too passive when he should have been aggressive, and he's too aggressive when he should have been passive. He was passive, remember, when he said, he bravely said, I'll follow you to the death, even to prison, even to death. As he said at the Last Supper when Jesus said he was going to deny him three times, well then, of course, he slinked around, hiding in the shadows, watching the trial of Jesus. It might be that he was so aggressive here is because of that, rebuke that Jesus had given Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and Peter's going to show in his flesh, no, I'm not going to deny you, I'm going to fight. He might have been trying to justify his discipleship. Good motives, maybe, but stupid. Now, the fact that Peter had a sword, remember Jesus told him when he went out in Luke chapter 22, 
he said, of course, he's referring to when they go out after his death, he said, carry two swords with you, from which the famous 5th century A.D. two-sword Pope Gelasius and the two-sword theory came from. Well, those two swords, of course, were not for aggression. They weren't trying to, to do nation-building or anything like that. They were just using the swords for defense because it was dangerous back then. They were highway robbers on the uh, road all the time. They had to have swords. They were not pacifist. They were armed against attack. So Jesus is not complaining that Jesus that Peter was carrying a sword. He just told him to you know the disciples to carry two swords with them. So that's that wasn't the problem. The problem is is when he used the sword. Now this guy Malchus he had probably come forth to arrest Jesus. That's probably why he got picked out by the by Peter to have his ear chopped off. And note that Peter was not aiming at his ear. He was aiming to cut Malchus's head off, and he missed. Jesus, of course, as we'll read later in just a minute, Luke 22 verse 51. Jesus healed the ear. Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. He he demonstrated his messianic power right there in front of his murderers. Now, notice that Malchus's ear was not merely cut. It was cut off. A phalen, as Adam Clark says, the Greek says, means to cut it off. So to heal it, Jesus had to either take up the ear and reattach it or to create a new one. Either way, it was a tremendous miracle, which Jesus was perfectly capable of. Going on to Matthew 26, verse 52, Then Jesus told him, told Peter, Put your sword back in its place, because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. Especially in those circumstances. He was rebuking Peter for his rashness. He was trying to soften the attitude of the mob. I'm sure they calmed down once Jesus healed Malchus's ear and told Peter to cool it. Provoking a fight in that situation would have gotten them all killed, as I said earlier. And as John Gill says, they were hopelessly outnumbered. Now, let's again talk about the fact that Peter had a sword. I mention this a lot because a lot of pacifists love to quote that verse, that he, that he live by the sword, die by a sword. But then if somebody breaks in their house and gets their wife rife raped or killed, and if uh, the homeowner, the husband, shoots the intruder, the rapist, the murderer, well, he just violated Jesus' will and he's some kind of a sinner. Well, that's nonsense. I actually, at a conference once that I was doing, I had the privilege to sit across from a pacifist, a dedicated pacifist. Now, pacifists are real nice people, of course, and dedicated Christians. And I don't know how it came up, but it did. And I sat there and listened and listened and listened to what he's talking about his pacifism. And I finally just asked him a simple question. What would you do if somebody broke into your house and tried and pointed a gun at your wife and said, I'm going to rape her and then I'm going to kill her. And you had the opportunity to got to jump on him to get a gun to shoot that guy. What would you do? And the first thing he said to me, everybody asked me that question all the time. Which, and I thought to myself, because it's the logical question to a- ask. How do you answer it, I thought. And his response was kind of interesting. He said, I don't know what I would do. And I thought, you know, you've got all these pacifist beliefs, but when push comes to shove, when the rubber hits the road, when all is said and done, you might pull the trigger. Because it's, in the, it's deep within the human breast to protect one's loved ones from animals who are masquerading as human beings who want to rape and kill. But anyway, so was Jesus saying those who live by the sword die by the sword? Is he saying um, what you should not be doing is using swords for revenge? Well, obviously that's true. You should never use swords for revenge. That's not self-defense. And that's obviously wrong to do, but that's not what Jesus Peter was doing here. So Jesus couldn't be referring to that. He wasn't trying to revenge himself on those temple police. Was Jesus complaining to, about Peter trying to establish the kingdom of God through military means? He could have been giving them a, a future warning. Hey, don't try to spread the gospel by the sword. Now, I wish the medieval church had listened. I remember when, uh, who was it? The king of the Franks, what was his name? 
the king of the Franks, I can't remember his name, in the 6th century A.D., baptized a whole slew of people, forced them to, beat them in battle, lined them up and said, baptize or die. Oh, now the Frankish kingdom is now Christian. Well, and, the, you know, the medieval Catholic Church did this all the time, baptized by force using swords, kind of like what Islam did in the Middle Ages, too. This is terrible. Again, that's a bad thing to use swords for. But was that was that really what Peter was doing right there in the garden? I don't think so. I think he was just trying to protect Jesus. Here's another option. Some people say that Jesus was not referring to Peter, but to the Jews. He's saying, look, Peter, put your sword away. We don't need to worry because the Jews are living by the sword. They're going to die by the sword. In AD 70, when they get wiped out, when I come in judgment. This is John Gill and Adam Clark's idea. Again, let me repeat that. Peter, the Jews have taken up a sword against me, but they're going to perish by Roman swords in 70 AD. Let me read you a quote from Adam Clark. It is probably a prophetic declaration of the Jewish and Roman states. The Jews put our Lord to death under the sanction of the Romans. Both took the sword against Christ and both perished by it. The Jews by the sword of the Romans and the Romans by of the Goths, Vandals, etc. The event has verified the prediction. The Jewish government has been destroyed upwards of 1,700 years, Clark's writing in the 19th century, and the Romans upwards of 1,000. That's an interesting idea. But I don't think that's what it was. I think he was just saying, Jesus is saying, look, don't try to protect me with a sword. Self-defense is fine. You've got a right of self-defense, but I am going to lay my life down voluntarily. And besides, it's not self-defense is a wonderful idea unless you don't have a chance. If you don't have a chance, you've got to take whatever the, the people with the, the greater power have over you. There's nothing you can do about it. And that, they were outnumbered here. So for those two reasons, Jesus wanted to lay his life down voluntarily, and they were woefully outnumbered. Jesus is telling Peter, cool it, put your sword away. He's not getting into theories of mili establishing the kingdom of God by military means or don't use the sword for revenge and all. I don't think he's doing all that. He was just using it for private defense in this situation. Now, there's nothing wrong with private defense as a general proposition, of course. Here's what Adam Clark says, quote, but how came Peter to have a sword? Judea was at this time so infested with robbers and cutthroats that it was not deemed safe for any person to go unarmed. He probably carried one for his mere personal safety, and Jesus had nothing against that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told the soldiers to go out with two swords, his disciples to go out with two swords, as he did in Luke chapter 22 after the Last Supper. We go on now to verse 53 in Matthew 26. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father, this is Jesus continuing to speak, or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me at once with more than twelve legions of angels? Peter, your little measly sword. I got, I could get twelve legions of angels at my command if I wanted to. If I wanted to default to my divine mode, to, to my divine nature, and get out of this mess, I could do it. But I've got to lay my life down for the salvation of the sins of the world. Why did Jesus say he could get twelve legions of angels? By the way, a, a legion had six thousand or more soldiers if it was at full complement. Usually, it wasn't. Could have 4,200, 5,000, says Adam Clark. So let's say 5,000 times 12. Well, that's 6,000. 6,000 angels. I can come down here and get me out of this jam here. So, Peter, put your sword down. That ain't, that's nothing. Jesus, of course, is operating out of his humanity, not out of his divinity, because he is going to be our high priest. He has to suffer with his, his human children. And he's got to fully experience their trials and tribulations and sufferings so that he can identify with our sufferings and deliver us from our sins. And so he's operating out of his humanity here and 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 uh, and refuses to call for those 12 legions of angels. He could have switched to divine mode, as I said, and called them down, but he didn't. Why did he say 12? Well, it could be he was talking about one legion for each of the 11 apostles and one for him. That's my theory. 
he could have just used that 12 to refer to the 12 apostles in general because 12 is kind of a sacred number all through the scriptures. Of course, what cuts against that theory is there are only 11 apostles now because Judas had quit. They hadn't chosen Matthias to replace him yet. But at any rate, that's a minor point. The point is, is that he could have gotten all the angels he wanted to, but he wanted to lay his life down voluntarily. Now we go to Matthew 26, verse 54. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And of course, he's referring to Zechariah 13:7, which he's already quoted to them in the Garden of Gethsemane earlier. And let me quote that verse to you again, Zechariah 13:7. Sword, awake against my shepherd. My is God, shepherd is Jesus. Against the man who is my associate, who is my God, the Father's associate. That's the associate is Jesus. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, God the Father. Strike the shepherd, strike Jesus, and the sheep will be scattered, the sheep are the disciples. I will also turn my hand against the little ones. The little ones are the disciples. They're going to be scattered. So that's probably the same scripture he's referring to. And if Peter and his disciples had fought and by some crazy chance had won the fight, which they wouldn't have, but if they had, then the shepherd wouldn't be struck and the disciples wouldn't be shattered, scattered and the scripture would not be fulfilled. But Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 54, and, he, and Jesus says in Matthew 26, 54, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled if you don't let me get struck and you scattered? And that just goes to show that if the Bible says something it's going to happen, even if it's a little unpleasant or even a lot unpleasant. I mean, getting crucified was a terrible thing, but of course that was from the foundation of the world. As Peter, what Peter said in his Pentecostal sermon, that God delivered Jesus up for the sins of the people from the foundation of the world. And Scripture is going to be fulfilled. God knows the future, and when he knows the future, that means it's going to happen. It could be some other scriptures uh, that Jesus could have been referring to, by the way. So let's mention them. These messianic, these, um, what can I say? Yeah, I guess you could say messianic scriptures. Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? That psalm would never have taken place if Peter had won with his sword. Psalm 22.18, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That happened at the crucifixion. Never would have happened if, G if Peter had won with his sword. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, that's the famous suffering servant passage. I'll read verses 9 and 12. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. That's Joseph of Arimathea, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. The burying in the grave by Joseph of Arimathea, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9, never would have happened if, Jesus, if Peter had won with his sword. Isaiah 53, 12, therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil. That's the church. Because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. He never would have borne our sins if Peter had won with his sword. We could, of course, mention the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9, but that's so complicated I won't mention it, but it does refer to the Messiah. Zechariah 11:12. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. That, of course, was fulfilled with Judas. That portrayal never would have been consummated and that prophecy would not have been fulfilled if Peter had won with a sword. Psalm 41 9, even my friend in whom I trusted one who ate my bread has raised his heel against me. That refers to Judas's betrayal. The betrayal would not have been successful if Peter had won with his sword. Psalm 69 21, instead they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This refers to Jesus on the cross. Never would have happened if Peter had won with his sword. Psalm 34:20. he protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That refers to Jesus not having his bones broken on the cross, and that never would have been fulfilled either. So you see, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Now that doesn't mean that 
the disciples had their free will violated. The, the fact that the future is determined by God does not mean that the local contingencies that we have as human beings are not still present to us. That's compatibilism, God's uh, determinism or his predestin predestination, I guess you could call it, is not incompatible with our free will. Nothing that these men did violated their free will at all. Nobody had their free will violated. Nobody. But it still came to pass. All right, let's turn over to Luke chapter 22, verses 49 through 50. We're going to overlap a little bit with the narrative. Verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, that would be the disciples, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? See, they still had the idea. It was not just Peter. They all were willing to give it a suicidal attempt like at the Alamo. Then one of them struck the high priest's slave, that's Peter, and cut off his right ear. We have a little extra detail here. It was Malchus's right ear. I don't know what, what difference that makes, except it shows the extraordinary details that those who were eyewitnesses to the event, that they recorded this. Now, let's discuss why might these disciples want to strike with a sword. Here's some options. Why were they so bold? Maybe they were suicidal. <laughs> Maybe they were heroic. Like I say, they knew they were doomed, but they were going to fight anyway just for the principle of the matter, and then throughout human history, people have done that, like I said, like at the Alamo. Well, John Gill, first of all, says they didn't understand Jesus' mind on the matter, and I think that's clear they didn't. Maybe they were bold enough to strike because they had just seen the mob fall back when Jesus identified himself. Remember, the, some of the arresting soldiers fell to the ground? John 18:6. when he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. That might have told them, hey, maybe we could win this in a fight. Jesus had done many miracles before. Maybe he could do another miracle and get, get us out of this bad situation. But unfortunately for them, in the short run, no, that wasn't God's plan. Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. Of course, this is something the disciples had no way of comprehending. It could be they just lost their heads, lost their reason, because they were so angry at Judas and his arresting company that they forgot reason. And the, and the reason, a rational person would have said, look, a couple swords are not going to beat an armed mob. It could be they were trying to make good on their boast that they had just a few hours earlier had proclaimed that they would follow Jesus to the death. Matthew twenty six thirty three. Peter told him, even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. Mm -hmm. Famous last words. Matthew twenty six thirty five. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. Famous last words. And all the disciples said the same thing. So they were trying to prove their loyalty by fighting. So there's some psychological re reasons, the reasonable reasons, why they might have tried to do something that on the surface looks pretty stupid, to fight against this mob. But Jesus, of course, told them to put the swords up. We go to 51 in chapter 22 of Luke, verse 51. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, that's Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant, he healed him. Now, why did Jesus do that? He wanted to calm the crowd down. He wanted to rebuke Peter for his rashness. He knew that if Peter provoked a fight in that situation, they would have gotten all killed because they were hopelessly outnumbered. The NIV Study Bible here says that when Jesus healed Malchus's ear, that Jesus rectified the wrong done by his follower. And that arose a thought in my mind. Well, yeah, it was wrong, but was it immoral or unethical? It was wrong given the situation and given Jesus' divine commissioned to, to save the sins of the world, it was wrong. But as a general proposition, is self-defense wrong? In other words, was it tactically wrong or universally morally wrong? Well, it seems to me that it was tactically wrong, of course. Jesus wouldn't have rebuked Peter. But was it morally wrong, self-defense? No. Self-defense is never morally wrong. And it's absurd to say that. I'm sorry, I'm not a pacifist. I think pacifism is one of the dumbest things, except maybe for 
universal URL, universal reconciliation, and, and hell ain't real, and that kind of stuff, or social justice warriors, that nonsense. That might rank right up there with pacifism, but it's just it's nonsense. It doesn't hold water. Let's move on to verse 52 and 53 in Luke chapter 22. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple complex, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour in the dominion of darkness. It was dark, remember? It was in the middle of the night. The dominion, yeah, this is what you criminals do. You're the criminals, not me. I was out there openly teaching. You could have arrested me, but you gutless wonders were afraid of the people. And so now you slink out here in the middle of the night to arrest me where the people can't see you, you bunch of cowards. That's basically what he's saying. Now, this is really interesting, interesting to me that Jesus, he was in charge. He's getting arrested to be nailed up on a cross, but he has the moral high ground the whole way. And he's mocking these people, making fun of them, which gives me sort of a perverse satisfaction. I, I, I like it. I hate to see injustice prevail. That's why I like watching Lifetime movies. The bad guys always get it at the end. They end up in court or in jail, the rapists, the murderers. And they get nailed. Jesus was not acting like the stereotypical pacifist turn-the-other-cheek guy, you know. He took this opportunity to gratuitously insult the chief priest. He didn't have to do this, but he did it. He wanted everyone to see that he was innocent. And he wanted everyone to see that there was nothing wrong with fighting back if the truth is at stake. Now, he wasn't fighting back. And, of course, that could have looked like cowardice. And it could have looked like he didn't really believe in his message, his messianic message that he'd been preaching for the last three and a half years. But he was so powerful in his posture and his statue while he was arrested that nobody could say that Jesus was a coward or that he had bailed out on his teaching. Nobody could say that. He stood up and stuck it in there, stuck his fingers in the high priest's eye, in the chief priest's eye. He even took the opportunity to say they were in league with the devil. He said, okay, you guys, this is the dominion of the darkness. This is your hours in the middle of the night where nobody can see you, you cowards. And, of course, the dominion of darkness is not only talking about the physical darkness. He's talking about the spiritual darkness. They were in the power of the devil. You guys are possessed of the devil. So come on, you demoniacs. Come arrest me. And so to this day, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Sadducees, all the ruling authorities of Jerusalem, they all look like the clowns and the moral monsters that they were to this day. Because Jesus, even though he had no power, no soldiers, no nothing, no money, he is worshipped now by something, what is it, a couple, 1.2 billion, well, I don't know, 2 billion people. I don't remember, lots of people. But nobody follows these Pharisees. Now, there's a few, I guess, but not many. They, they, they lost. They won in the garden. They lost. They won in the short term. But boy, did they ever lose big time in the long run. And, what, and what's especially exciting about it is when you see Messianic Jews, when you see a lot of Jews who say, uh-uh, you know, our forefathers, they really did Jesus bad. I want to believe in Jesus because he's my Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. That's something comforting about that. Also, all right, let's move on to verse 54. They seized him, and this is in Luke chapter 22. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. That's Caiaphas' house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Well, that's for next week. Next, excuse me, next audio. We'll stop it right there. And Luke, and I think we now want to go to John, chapter 10, verse 10. Excuse me, chapter 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave. We're overlapping the narrative a little bit. Struck the slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. That's how we know his name. 
At that, Jesus said to Peter, Sheath your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, we need to thank John because now we know the names of those who were involved with this unfortunate incident of Peter striking off Malchus's ear. We never would have known if John had not told us. Some speculate that Peter might still have been alive when John wrote, and therefore John didn't want to get him in trouble. And so, excuse me, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not want to get him in trouble, so they didn't mention him, but, but John did. John actually knew the high priest and therefore might have known Malchus. That might be why he mentioned his name. John 18:15 says this, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple, and most people say that other disciple was John, the author of the gospel here. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. That's how John got in. And so it's natural that John would mention Malchus's name. Jesus says, one little extra detail here, Jesus says, Am I not to Peter? Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup is a symbol of suffering. Here's some scriptures. Psalm 75, 8. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the edges. So the cup was a symbol of judgment. Ezekiel 23, 31-34. You have followed the path of your sister, so I will put her cup in your hand. This is what... The Lord God says you will drink your sister's cup. This is the sister kingdom of Israel. I think it's talking to the southern kingdom here, talking about your sister's cup in the northern kingdom. You will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide. You will be an object of ridicule and scorn, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and grief, with a cup of devastation and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. Then you will gnaw its broken pieces and tear your breast. For I have spoken, this is the declaration of the Lord God. So you see, cup is a symbol of judgment. It could have referred to the poison that executioners used to give to condemn criminals. It could have been referred to the nasty medicine that doctors gave to their patients. could have referred to the cup of wine and myrrh mixed together that dying criminals on the cross were given to alleviate their pain. But at any rate, it's, it's a good symbol. And we don't get the richness of it really in English unless you know the Jewish background. It refers to the wrath of God. So Jesus was talking about the cup that he's going to drink. What he's talking about, the wrath that the Father is getting ready to pour out on him for carrying the sins of the world. Here's some more, Isaiah 51:17. Wake yourself, wake yourself up. Stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup of his fury from the hand of the Lord. You, have, you who have drunk the goblet to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. Isaiah 51:22. This is what your Lord says, Yahweh, even your God who defends his people, look, I have removed the cup of staggering from your hand. That goblet, the cup of my fury, you will never drink it again. Jeremiah 25:15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations I am sending you to drink from it. Revelation 14.10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. Revelation 16.19, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. So you see... There's not much doubt about the symbolism of the cup. And Jesus says, I'm about to drink that cup of the Father's wrath. All right, we'll finish up with John here. In John 18:12. then the company of soldiers, the commander and the Jewish temple police, arrested Jesus and tied him up. Why'd they tie him up, by the way? Well, that was standard procedure. You tied up people you arrested. 
It could be more than standard procedure is the fact, as John Gill points out, Jesus had escaped the Jews several times before and they were taking no chances. They weren't going to let him get loose. Jameson Fawcett and Brown makes the point that not until Jesus had made them feel that no man could take his life from him, except that he laid it down, that's when he got tied up, after he'd already shown them, hey, I'm going here voluntarily. I'm not going to fight you. I've healed the high servants here. I've rebuked my disciple who pulled a sword on you. I've knocked you to the ground. I've made fun of you about you arresting me here at night. Okay, so now you can take me. And so they took him. They took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. There's two high priests. The ex-high priest was Annas. When he quit, I forgot his dates exactly, but when he quit being the high priest, that was a several-year interlude. Then his son-in-law Caiaphas took over, and and Caiaphas was the high priest that particular year that Jesus was arrested and crucified. Let's see. Annas had been deposed by the Romans in 8015. I forgot when he took over. Many people probably still regarded him as the high priest. So that's why they went to his house first. Jesus went through four trials. He went or four here, four kangaroo court hearings, I should say. Annas, the ex-high priest house, then Caiaphas, the current high priest house, then to Pontius Pilate at the Praetorium, probably in Herod's palace, and then Pontius Pilate sent him to Herod, and then Herod sent him back to Pontius Pilate. Actually, four different places, five different times, actually. They... they The kangaroo court system was in full operation. All right, let's now move to Mark chapter, excuse me, Matthew 26, verse 55, and pick up one extra detail. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, if you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me, every day I used to sit teaching in the temple complex and you didn't arrest me. Notice that Jesus says, as if I were a criminal. This is what you do to criminals. You come out with swords and ropes and going to arrest me and tie me up. Well, if I'm such a criminal, why didn't you arrest me when I was just walking around in broad daylight in the temple? You know I'm not a criminal. So basically what Jesus is saying, I'm innocent, guys. And it's absurd for you to treat the Son of God as if he were a criminal. This is a little subtlety you often don't get reading these passages. But if you really read between the lines, Jesus is proving that he's the Son of God. Of course, all the skeptics who like to blaspheme him all the time and ignore him all the time and wonder why they're going to get sent to a hell they don't believe even exists. They've got no excuse. All they got to do is read the scriptures. They'll see who Jesus was, but no, no, they got better things to do. They got to read philosophy. They got to get involved in politics to bring about utopia on earth while they trample everybody else's rights to the ground. So now let's go to Luke chapter 22, verse 52. Actually, I've already read that. Excuse me. Let's now finish up by going back to Mark chapter. 14 verse 51 and this is a detail that only mark has and it's it's uh, an enigmatic incident here it's hard to figure out exactly what happened here now a certain young man having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body was following him they caught hold of him but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked and oh boy do people like to speculate who this guy was well let me just give you some options i'm going to tell you right now i don't know who it was but Some people say it was John. This is said it was a young man, and Gil says John was the youngest disciple. I don't know how Gil knows that John, the son of Zebedee, was the youngest disciple. Some people say John Gill says it could be James, the brother of the Lord. Why? I don't know. John Gill speculates it could be an unnamed man who was a man of the house where the Last Supper was eaten. He had followed to see what would happen. Well, that's nice. Who knows? It could be an unnamed man who lived near the Garden of Gethsemane and who was awakened by the soldiers and ran to see what had happened. That actually doesn't sound unlikely to me. 
according to John Gill and Adam Clark, he'd just be somebody who awoke quickly. And the fact that he woke quickly, only had a linen cloak on and nothing on under, under means he was sleeping in his linen sheets. The linen, by the way, is usually wool for an outer garment. The linen shows he had wealth. He was a wealthy person out there. Well, that could be. Most people speculated it was John Mark because of his anonymity. It says, and a certain young man, John Mark, because of modesty, might not have mentioned who it was. Might not wanted to get himself in trouble either, for that matter. But he mentions, and here's to believe this, here are the assumptions you have to make. The Lord's Supper was held in John Mark's parents' house. It's well known that John Mark's parents lived in Jerusalem. It could have been that's who where the Lord's Supper was held. After the supper, Mark went to sleep as Jesus took his disciples to Gethsemane. Judas arrives at the house in Jerusalem with the soldiers looking for Jesus because he knew that's where the Lord's Supper had been. Mark hears this. He wakes up. He hastily grabs his linen sheets, his linen sheet that he was sleeping on, and he followed the soldiers. Now, some people object to that. He's going to freeze. It's about 50 degrees that night. you got nothing on but a linen sheet. Well, you can survive in 50 degrees. It might be uncomfortable, but you can survive. He was in a hurry, and so he just grabbed the sheet and went. And then... He's there watching, and then when the other disciples fled, he got he, he he almost got caught, but the linen sheet slipped off his body when they grabbed him because linen is slippery, and he barely got away. That that to me is just as good a speculation as any. I even saw some guy speculating that it was when Jesus said, "I am He," and the soldiers fell down. There was a little bit of power came out of Jesus and resurrected somebody because there were cemeteries down there at the bottom of the hill bottom of the Mount of Olives near Gethsemane. And in that cemetery, there were some people that were dead, and one of them rose and said, I want to go see who resurrected me. I don't believe that. But I found two people on the Internet who speculated that. See, that's the thing. When there's not a lot of facts, speculation can run wild. Anyway, I'm going to assume it's John Mark. John Piper makes the point is that whoever it was, we don't want to miss the main point, which was that the people were afraid, and the disciples were afraid, and they ran like crazy. And that was the point of why this detail was even mentioned by Mark, is they were scared. And they were in terror, and they, they were terrified, and they ran. Now, it's interesting, you know, Jesus said, I don't want you to arrest my disciples, let them go. And they were let go, but they did try to arrest this guy, so they might have not let them. They might have tried to get the disciples, but in the confusion and in the darkness, plus the fact the disciples did have swords, they might have been reluctant to go after them. They might have been afraid if they went after the disciples in the confusion, Jesus might have gotten away. And, of course, their main object was to get Jesus. But at any rate, all the disciples got away. Thank goodness for the future of the church. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the story of Jesus getting arrested in Gethsemane. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm now, I have now returned from my splice of that previous audio I had done on Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. So we're finished now with John 18, 1 through 12, concerning Jesus' arrest and betrayal by Judas and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and his, forsake, and his being forsaken by the disciples. Next audio, we'll take up Jesus before Annas as he, as the temple guards, take him to the high priest house Annas for a kangaroo court inquisition. This will be covered in John 18, 12 through 14 and 19 through 23. There are no parallel passages on that, so we'll get a, a little greater detail from, from John as to what happened on the night that, the, on the last day of Jesus' life. I hope you tune in for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 